Good morning. More violence in Israel as settlers burn Palestinian homes. The government denies it's made up its mind about the source of the COVID-19 virus. A report from Ukraine and anti-police activists face gang-related charges in Atlanta. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Tuesday morning, February 28, 2023. A 37-year-old Palestinian father of five was shot and killed Saturday night near the West Bank town of Nablus. It was one of at least 300 attacks, including the burning of more than 30 Palestinian homes and 100 cars by rampaging Israeli settlers. Nearly 400 Palestinians were injured. It was an unprecedented attack, some Palestinians are calling a pogrom. The violence came after Palestinian attackers killed two Israeli brothers in their 20s who lived in a settlement considered illegal under international law south of Nablus. In Washington, State Department spokesperson Ned Price condemned violence on both sides. We condemn the horrific killing of two Israeli brothers near Nablus and the killing today of an Israeli near Jericho, who we understand was also an American citizen. We express our deepest condolences to all of the victims, families, and their loved ones. We also condemn the wide-scale, indiscriminate violence by settlers against Palestinian civilians following the killing. The attacks reportedly led to the death of one Palestinian man, more than 300 residents injured, four seriously, and the torching of an estimated 30 Palestinian homes and cars. These actions are completely unacceptable. The United States extends its deepest condolences to those affected by this violence. Settler attacks have been on the rise in recent years, especially in the Nablus area where many settlers live. The violence comes days after Israeli forces killed 11 Palestinians, wounding more than 100. And the source of the COVID-19 virus that's killed more than a million Americans and millions more worldwide has eluded researchers since the disease appeared three years ago. It apparently originated in China, but there's been intense debate over whether the virus mutated naturally, originating from bats and pangolins at a wet market in Wuhan, or escaped from a Chinese laboratory. Former President Donald Trump famously supported the latter theory, going so far as to label the virus at a United Nations speech. We have waged a fierce battle against the invisible enemy, the China virus, which has claimed countless lives in 188 countries. Trump's labeling the virus after China has led to numerous attacks on people of Chinese descent in the United States, including several who were killed. In a recently released report, the United States Department of Energy has weighed in, claiming with low confidence, that's their words, COVID-19 began with a lab leak. But other intelligence agencies disagree, and on Monday, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said there is no consensus on the source of the virus. The president made trying to find the origins of COVID a priority right when he came into office, and he's got a whole-of-government effort designed to do that. There is not a consensus right now in the U.S. government about exactly how COVID started. Uh, there is just not an intelligence community consensus. And I would add that one of the things the president did was he, he's the one who tasked the national labs, which were put up through the Department of Energy, to study this as well. So it wasn't just an effort that was confined to the intelligence community. That work is still ongoing. But 
the president believes it's really important that we continue that work and that we find out as best we can how it started so that we can better prevent a future pandemic. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby, no intelligence agency has said they believe the coronavirus that caused COVID-19 was released intentionally. Last week at a meeting of the United Nations Security Council on the war in Ukraine, Russia's ambassador to the United Nations, Vasily Nebenshia, said his country is looking for a peaceful resolution to the conflict, but it's NATO and the West that are perpetuating the fighting. We are ready to negotiate about how the goals of our special military operation could be implemented using peaceful means. Uh, but of course, any mechanism uh, which uh, are underpinned by other kind of scenarios, we are not prepared to consider. Colleagues, we have stated many times this week that ending hostilities in Ukraine is not something that the collective West is interested in, and only collective West alone. They, um, as we know for a fact, prevent the Kiev regime from making peace in April last year, and our Western colleagues currently are happy with everything. And most importantly, the West is rubbing its hands and hoping that it will weaken Russia, will threaten China, and will keep its monopoly position in the world. And that is what is meant by the rules-based order, which Russia dared infringed upon because we don't want to um, accept a Russophobic wasp's at our borders. Vasily Nebenshia is Russia's ambassador to the United Nations. But in Ukraine, millions remain loyal to the government and are deeply involved in what they see as a war against Russian invaders. Maria Pizarenko is a representative of the Kyiv-based Sergei Pritula Foundation that marshals philanthropic support for the war effort. Pizarenko tells the news, in the past year, Ukrainians have learned that everything is political. Nothing is beyond politics because politics one day or one morning at 4 a.m. can knock at your window with explosions or with Russian tanks. And we are talking international politics. Number two is, we have had this year, was Ukrainians understood that like, their country is, is their business. So nobody, nobody else can, can defend their country. And it was, you know, in a very beautiful way that people started doing whatever they could to defend their country. Went fighting with rifles, guns, with Molotov cocktails in their hands. Some went helping those who were fighting with you know, equipment, volunteering, raising money to buy equipment, cooking food for the fighters. And some people started working kind of on the international level, uh, trying to explain what's happening in Ukraine, trying to, you know, change the mind of people who were in disbelief and saying like, oh, no, no, it's not a war, there's some quarrels or something. And it really, really helped, you know. And I guess number number third, like main change, is that we, the Ukrainians, um, our people, again, our society, our defense forces, um, they helped shift this perception in the world about what Ukraine is, about the fact that it is not something near Russia or it's not something which is kind of object of geopolitics. It's a subject. And um, people here are real power. And Ukraine is the future and Russia is the past. And what Russia is doing is just can't be tolerated on, on any level. So why not let them have Donbass? Why not let them have Crimea? if that's what they want. 
imagine you have a house you have been building for years with nice patio, patio with nice garden. You have been like cherishing and growing and putting lots of efforts and your money in this. Uh, you, you made it kind of a family nest for you. You have been feeling very comfortably. You have been you know, growing gardens, selling stuff, uh, growing, developing and everything. And then some some, I don't know, burglar or some some men or a group even of men attack your family nest, destroys your garden, breaks into your house, uh, occupy your patio, occupy your living room, occupy your kitchen. And there was you standing with a rifle just shooting at these people. And they like didn't manage to occupy your bathroom, let's say so. And then they say, okay, we want your patio, we want your garden, we want your house, so you should leave. And you're like, why on earth should I leave my house? You know, this is the same story. It's our country, it's our land, Donbass, these are all the parts of Ukraine. NATO's remain unified. Can you really believe that countries like Germany and France and some others will be there to the extent even the United States, your president is constantly having to beg the United States and the United States is not giving its most powerful weapons. Do you feel that you're getting the support you need from the geopolitically from the West? It's a process. In the Oval Office, Joseph Biden was saying goodbye to our Minister of Foreign Affairs, Dmitry Kuleba. And it was like a very, very tragic moment because he was like talking to him as like for the last for the last time, I would and right now, uh, Joseph Biden comes to Kiev and looks like the biggest victory for him of all of his career as a politician, as a world politician. And he meets our president. He walks to the city center of Kiev very victoriously, let's say so. A, a significant change. It's a shift, I would say, because Russia is showering Ukraine and all over Ukraine with missiles and also the frontline territories with shells with artillery and you need more just because it's never enough it's full-scale war it's total war everything is being destroyed you know all the ammunition is being used uh, like daily so we need more weapon we need long-range missiles we need fighter jets to ensure that ukraine gains advantage over russia and kicks out russians so we need more of this Last thing, you have, what is your opinion of the uh, Nord Stream bombing? What happened to that uh, pipeline? We need to have like investigation, and I, I'm against any you know conspiracy theories on this matter. But to put it shortly, Nord Stream, where the bombs, let's say so, of a very slow action, you know, and. A year ago, before full-scale invasion, everybody was screaming that Russia is putting Europe on a needle, gas needle. So you need to do something with it. And nobody was listening. What is happening right now is a very understandable event. And Nord Stream is one more way for Russia to blackmail Europe and Western world. And now, as we see, Russia is getting weaker and weaker. And uh, Russia, as, a, as an evil, as an occupier, they are getting a just punishment, let's say so. Anything you'd like to add? Again, to thank you, the, the Americans who might be listening to this, and I want to thank you for, again, your support, for understanding Ukrainians, and for uh, being with us. Maria Pizarenko is a representative of the Kiev-based Sergei Pritula Foundation. She spoke with the news from Kiev, Ukraine. 
A week after President Biden traveled to Ukraine to pledge American support in the war with Russia, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen also visited Kyiv as Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in the former Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan. Yellen used her visit to announce the transfer of $1.25 billion in economic aid, vowing America will stand with Ukraine, which has been losing $5 billion a month, according to the International Monetary Fund. Economist Jack Rasmus is author of Central Bankers at the End of Their Rope. He was economic advisor to Greens Party presidential candidate Jill Stein. Rasmus says the conflict in Ukraine is about protecting the rules of the game that have benefited the United States since World War II. U.S. empire is being challenged, uh, early phases of this challenge, particularly by Russia and China and some others who are sort of standing on the sidelines, seeing uh, which sides are going to prevail. You know, India, Brazil and some of the others, they're, they're sort of watching it closely. Uh, but the, the U.S. empire is, is reacting now more aggressively in the 21st century to precipitate, uh, you know, checking and checkmating uh, these new challenges, Russia and, and China. Uh, and uh, in the course of this, uh, they are uh, restructuring the global capitalist economy. Uh, they are in the process of bifurcating that economy. And we don't know the true long run consequences of that economically. But clearly, the U.S. is uh, uh, tightening its alliances with the G7 and most of the G20 economies. In other words, uh, rallying the you know, the wagons here and uh, making sure Europe and Japan and, uh, you know, Korea and all the rest are um, solidly in its camp and uh, then contending for, you know, most of these emerging markets that are watching closely. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if China and um, and Russia break away and a new, create a new multipolar arrangement, uh, then some of these other countries are, you know, India and, and so others are going to join them. And there's signs of that already beginning. So if the U.S. US doesn't bifurcate and, and ring fence off uh, its economic empire, uh, it, it's going to unravel. And they know it. They know that these conflicts with China and Russia are strategic. They're in the early phases. The U.S. empire is intending to uh, uh, confront them before they get even more powerful and stronger economically. And and that's what's going on. And we've got a a rearranging, a restructuring beginning of the global capitalist economy and system here. Uh, The the Russians call it creating a multipolar world, you know, Russians and Chinese and the U.S. say, oh, uh, this is the new uh, 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 rules, world rules order, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the key phrases that sort of uh, indirectly summarize this conflict and right. this bifurcating of the global empire. And at the UN, I saw the uh, the ambassador making his speech for Russia saying specifically responding to the whole idea of a rules-based order as being just a euphemism for American control. Yeah, American hegemony. The U.S. is, is attempting to restore and solidify its hegemony over its economic global interests and geopolitically as well. That's what the war in Ukraine is really about. In my article there that I sent you, ten re- I wrote last year, 10 reasons why the U.S. may want Russia to invade. You know, at the top of that list was uh, to restore U.S. hegemony over NATO, which was getting shaky under Trump. You know, France and Germany were talking about going in more independent here. Well, you know, the war has ended all that talk. France and Germany are, are sort of just tagging along, and the U.S. and its Eastern uh, European NATO friends, 
which they cleverly uh, over 20 years brought into NATO, uh, are really running NATO right now. And, uh, you know, the U.S. has hegemony over NATO like, like never before. Its main economic objective of the war was to drive Russia out of Western Europe because Europe was getting too integrated with the Russian economy, particularly energy, but everything else. It succeeded in that, as I point out in my my discussion and my forthcoming article. You know, it's driven Russia out of Europe not just the energy markets, but financial markets and, and others. Uh, and the U.S. is stepping into the vacuum, uh, reestablishing its economic hegemony over Europe as never before, while it it's, it's reestablishes its, uh, its uh, hegemony over NATO. Is this a long-term change, do you think? I mean, is the U.S. Yeah. won the battle for now? The U.S. has won the battle for Europe, okay? It's successfully thrown Russia out of Europe. And now the battle is whether they can extend NATO even further east to weaken Russia even more. Rasmus says the United States is following a well-worn diplomatic path named after a former Secretary of State under then-President Jimmy Carter. But Rasmus says it's a dangerous road that could lead to war. The U.S. strategy is what I call a Brzezinski 2.0 strategy. Remember, it's the big Neil Brzezinski, 1979, mm-hmm. uh, gets together with Carter in the summer of 79, according to his own uh, memoir. And uh, they plan to destabilize uh, the secular then government, Najibullah government, in Afghanistan and lure the Russians in, get Najibullah to invite the Russians in and then engage in a proxy war, which is what they did. And they were quite successful in that throughout the 80s, and that helped uh, bring down the Soviet Union. This is the same thing going on, but now in Ukraine. This is Brzezinski 2.0. Lure the Russians in, run a proxy war for a long time, undermine the economy, uh, and therefore destabilize and get regime change politically. Russia, though, is not Afghanistan. Is it possible that the U.S. has bit off a little more than it can chew this time around? It may very well be. We will see what happens here uh, this year. This is a you know a critical juncture year militarily. We'll see what happens with the offenses that are coming in the spring, which one prevails and who uh, escalates further if they do. And then, of course, we'll see uh, to what extent, as the U.S. sends even more lethal weapons into Ukraine, whether uh, China is, is going to up its presence and Iran Uh, And you can expect another front war there between Israel and Iran before this is over. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, Northern Korea and whatever. Everything is sort of slipping and sliding towards a a greater confrontation. And I don't see that slowing down politically or economically or militarily. We are slouching towards World War III. Economist Jack Rasmus is author of Central Bankers at the End of Their Rope. He was also economic advisor to Greens Party presidential candidate Jill Stein. In other high-level diplomacy, President Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus, an ally of Russia, is expected to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. The United States in recent days has been warning China not to supply weapons to Russia. And you're listening to the news from New York City 
I'm Paul DiRienzo. In national news, in Atlanta, Georgia, a crusading district attorney, Fannie Willis, has been going after gangs and possibly a former president using a law known as RICO, racketeering-influenced corrupt organization laws first passed by Congress to go after the mafia back in the 1970s. Subsequently, RICO laws were expanded, targeting protesters, more directly organizations said to support protesters, in situations where some of the protesters may have used violence. RICO allows almost anybody connected to the protesters to be prosecuted and their possessions seized. Atlanta lawyer Donald Samuel is an expert on RICO laws. He spoke with the news on Monday. RICO is the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act. It was passed in 1980. It is, in essence, a generation after the federal RICO statute was passed in the 70s. The federal RICO statute was passed specifically to deal with the mafia. And it's used in very ordinary cases now. Um, and, you know, even for cases that should be, you know, treated as misdemeanors are suddenly being described as RICO cases and, and racketeers. And, uh, it's it's not, not what the legislature intended when it was passed, but it's being used more and more and more by the Attorney General uh, and by Fulton County DA and by other DAs around the state. What do you have to do as a political activist to wind up in the same class as Al Capone? Basically, it is group activity, which is, used to be just be called a conspiracy, but now they call it organized criminal activity. But it's just basically a conspiracy of people who group together and commit crimes. If it's going to be applied against activists, they will simply describe them as a group, sometimes known as an association, in fact, people who are perpetrated a number of crimes, whether they are criminal damage to property, interfering with government property, in some cases, arson, or more serious felonies. But then you just kind of group them all together and say, you're all part of this organization. We're going to prosecute the whole lot of you. Under. And so that's happening right now in Georgia because of Cop City, I imagine. There's no pending RICO case in Georgia. We are fearful that that is coming. What there is is, in some ways, even more pernicious, which is that they are prosecuting protesters as terrorists, particularly ironic, given that some of the Republican members of the Georgia legislature don't think of what happened on January 6th as being domestic terrorism. And yet they're alleging that some of the people who did no more than trespass. These charges are pending, are engaged in domestic terrorism because they're affiliated with the group that, had, that has now been declared by the Department of Homeland Security as a domestic terrorist. So folks have been tossing bottles but, and Molotovs and things like that. Is that what you're saying? There has that's been. That's right. And if one person. That's the, that's the problem. Yes. That's the problem. There's too much activity, which is, you know, looks much more like coercing the government through violence. The problem with the terrorism allegations are that there are sweeping too many people into just by being part of the group, as opposed to prosecuting the Molotov cocktail thrower or the person who throws a brick through a store window. Prosecute that person. Don't prosecute the entire group. RICO is even more pernicious because with RICO, you're going to bring in everybody just by virtue of them being part of the group. I mean, it's clear that if you're part of the group, you're guilty. And even worse, 
the seizures of assets, the seizures of money. And that may not mean much to individual protesters, but if they start going after the organizations that are helping them, it could have a terrible impact. So if someone helps them and they're in another state, could somebody from the state of Georgia seize the funds from uh, uh, the ACLU in New York? Yes, you're getting close to what my fear is. They have not done that, and I want to be careful. I'm not saying they have done it, but it makes me nervous when I start hearing them throw around terms like domestic terrorism. I know the AG's office uses RICO like you and I use microphones, you know? I mean, that's just their tool of trade. It makes me nervous that they're thinking about that. And there's been rumors, and really nothing more than rumors. Atlanta lawyer Donald Samuel. Atlanta has been transfixed by protests against a proposed police training facility, protesters call it Cop City, slated for a forest within Atlanta's boundaries, bordering a poor neighborhood. Recently, a protester who used the name Tortuguita was shot and killed by a police officer in a murky incident at a protest campsite. And that's some of the news for Tuesday morning, February 28, 2023. The news was produced by this reporter. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.